something exciting. Next week, I always enjoy starting a new verse-by-verse study through the a book of the Bible. Typically, what we try to do here is a pattern. Every once in a while, we'll do a topical study like we've done these past three weeks. But we try to go New Testament book, Old Testament book, back and forth so that we're covering the full counsel of the Word of God. We did Old Testament over the summer when we did Ecclesiastes, taking some time in wisdom literature. We're going to be studying 1 John, a series called A Guide to the Christian Life, starting next week. And I um, just want to share with you something about the bulletin that you guys are holding. We've, we've sort of streamlined things. And what we wanted to do was to make everybody have the ability to not feel intimidated to be a part of a community group. We would love to see 100% of the people that call this church their home to be involved in community that goes beyond Sunday mornings. So we would love for you to be able to go to the groups and show up prepared for the discussion. The discussion will be the text and the questions that you see before you. But just something else to get you thinking when you come to the worship service. One of the things we try to do is we don't put together the songs, the scripture readings, the prayers, the announcements, and just throw them all at a wall and see what sticks. We try to have one continual thought looped through. So you'll find that whatever our text is, those songs are meant to reinforce the text. So that's going to be the first question in your bulletin each week is how does the music help to lift our hearts to the truth that we're going to be looking at through the scriptures? Um, we also, uh, I think you'll see the scriptures that Eric picked out to read this week, Ephesians 2 and 1 Peter, were absolutely perfect. Um, so we believe that through repetition, it's the best way to take the things that we're learning, be able to drive it home. And then the reason we discuss the sermon then in the community groups is because we're called together to be effectual doers of the word, not just hearers. So it gives you an opportunity to then take what you have heard preached and talk about within an intimate setting of people that will help love you, pray for you, and hold you accountable, how to take God's word and apply it to your lives, and then have us as a church taking and applying the same word together as a community. And we believe that when we do that, that God shows up and does big things. So... We're excited about that. If you are looking, uh, we're looking at our third and final message in our mini-series called Simply Church. And so far we've looked at multiplying disciples, and we had a testimony and a very practical application as it was the final Sunday before we sent out our church plant, Redeemer Point Pleasant. They have their second official meeting this week. Um, They had their first visitors that found them not just being a part of the core group, but people that showed up and were a part of that community. Just yesterday, they um, were at an outreach in Point Pleasant, and they had two or three visitors that said that um, they want to start to engage the church that met them through that outreach. So God is doing a neat work there. Um, Last week, we looked into multiplying into the next generation, and we looked at the call for the church to actively be seeking to invest in and pour God's love into the next generation. We had a few applications in taking, talking about how to invest in relationships, both in home and in the church. And I just want to share before I move on, I was so proud of this body as I heard the conversations that were taking place 
afterwards. I heard people saying, how, how do we take these truths, and maybe I don't even have kids in, in the home anymore, but I believe that the locus of God's ministry is underneath the roof, and that's where we're supposed to use our homes as the opportunity, the springboard to be able to pour the gospel into our children, to be able to live it out in a consistent way. And I heard people saying, maybe I'm years removed from that, or maybe that's never been my season of life, but how can I invest in others where that is their season of life? And I was just so blessed by the maturity that I heard from you guys. That's, that's Christian maturity right there. When somebody says, hey, this doesn't directly apply to me, but it matters to the heart of Jesus. So how do I take that which matters to the heart of Jesus and begin to see it infiltrate through Christian community? That's, that's called the sacrificial nature of Christian community. This week, we're looking at multiplying community, and we're going to be working off of the simple premise that God saves people, places them into meaningful community, and as long as he continues to save people and multiply the converts on this earth, then we should be seeing the multiplication of Christian gospel communities on this earth. Pretty simple, right? Before we get in, each week I've wanted to just show a practical way of how we're seeking to walk in obedience to that. So I'm going to ask Pastor Seski to come up for a moment. Um, i got a few questions for you. I'm going to put you on the spot, Pastor. Is that all right? All right. Uh, come on, man. I was trying to make you look good. <laughs> I wanted to. Yeah, you do look good. <laughs> oh, man. I can't, even, I can't even say anything about that. So um, you might have the questions, but I lost them. So uh, you've been a part of a group <laughs> um, since we first started community groups. That's correct, right? And uh, I should know that because you're a part of the group that I used to lead, so I remember seeing you there each week. And now you lead a group and are taking on more of a responsibility as we've laid hands on you and ordained you as um, shepherding and overseeing community groups as a whole. So um, you obviously community groups see community groups as a vital piece. Why is it that you see them as so important and worth investing into? Can I take that question and just make it a little bit more personal now? And, and I'm curious, how has being a part of a community group helped your walk with Christ? And, and there was a reason behind my question for that, Pastor. I, I've seen um, and I've, I've read widely that often churches will take community groups and want it to be an initiative for the congregation, but often the pastors and people in leadership don't participate at the level that they're trying to get the congregation to buy in. Uh, and one of the areas that I respected about you so much 
and why I've asked you to step into this role is you were just faithfully a part of our group week in and week out. So I got to see you show that it was something that was important on your heart and then begin to reflect that to the body. So why is it important to you personally? And you can speak for Stephanie if uh, you got an answer there too. I would say I'm I think we got a chance to see that firsthand yesterday as we were here for the unfortunate passing of, of um, Stephen Robertello and saw that community group completely take that funeral service and run with it. And that wasn't some church-wide initiative, that wasn't a program, that was just the people that were doing life with George and Nancy that wanted to make sure that they had people with them in their greatest hour of need. Um, I know that they're a part of your group, so thank you for your just love and shepherding them through that season. Um, can you tell us something that you've observed in community group that goes beyond what you'd be able to get on Sunday morning? I know you've heard me say that Sunday morning's like Thanksgiving, but um, community group is like when we go and do our meals together as a family throughout the week. So what's something that you get through community group that Sunday morning just doesn't scratch that itch? First thing that Hmm. 
I've got one last question for you, and then I'd like to pray for our community groups. Um, what would you say to encourage somebody who's maybe been coming out on Sundays and um, they're shy or uh, just busyness of schedule or any myriad of reasons has kept them from being able to plug into a group? What would you say to encourage them to maybe take that next step and try out being a part of a group? Good word, Pastor. Thank you. I want to take a moment and pray for our community group leaders. Um, I think our community group leaders have taken a hit this week. I'm saying some of them um, just not here, but some of them are. And if you are here, um, don't be bashful. Your uh, failure to stand when I ask you to stand so I could pray for you is not a sign of humility. Um, So um, if you're here and you lead a group, would you please stand so that we could pray for you? I do see Pastor Tim. We got Seski over there. We got the Smiths. Um, All right, we got Matt. Um, If you are around them, would you just take a a chance, if you feel comfortable, just laying a hand on them and praying for them, and I'm going to pray for our community group leaders. But now you know people that you could grab to be able to plug into one, and we have two or three other groups as well. Jesus, thank you for the work that you are doing through our community groups. Lord, you said in, in 1 Peter that we are the priesthood of believers. We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, which means that this is not supposed to be a top-down thing, Lord. You've called us to a grassroots movement of Christianity where your gospel takes root in Christian communities and begins to uh, spread in and through us and beyond us. I pray that you would use and bless our community group leaders for stepping out and saying, here am I, Lord, send me into this beautiful shepherding, leading, um, facilitating, whatever the way they're using their gifts, Lord, you've used them in this mission field, and we thank you for them, and we ask that um, even today you would put it on people's hearts to take that next step and to plug in and say, I want to both know and be known, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Pastor. Sometimes a, uh, a testimony can really drive home the passage that we're going to be looking at. So I have a few questions for you as we get to our passage. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 if you want to turn there. It will also be projected up behind me if you want to follow along that way. 
Like we don't want to get into hokey church methodolatry. Uh, methodolatry is a word that uh, combines methodology and an idolatry. We're not trying to idolize methodology. So we ask, is this something that the Bible mandates or gives example of multiplication? With each of these, like we said last week, we're going to be looking at aspects of multiplication. We want to make sure that we're not just throwing out worldly Christian principles, but we're actually teaching the Bible. What made it multiply would be the next question. Um, we don't want it to just be licks, tricks, and gimmicks. You know, what is it that brought about this multiplication? Is it simple? You have to ask that question, a series called Simply Church. And is it radical, or are we merely talking about simple, orthodox Christianity? So as we look through this passage, I'm going to give you the flow of the passage right up front. And you can work through um, the community group questions in your bulletin if you want to follow along. But this text happens right after the first group of mass conversions that we see in the church and responding to the gospel at Pentecost. Next, we see that after a mass of conversions, God placed these individuals who were saved into biblical community. Um, third, the biblical communities were all centered around Christ and his gospel. Fourth, the gospel communities continued to multiply in number, effectiveness, and depth. Fifth, biblical communities sacrifice in order to demonstrate the sacrifice of Christ. Sixth, the result was awe. And seventh, their final premise is going to be that awe multiplies. So to answer the question that I asked in the beginning, no, this is not radical. This is just biblical Christianity magnifying the Father through the worship of the Son as led by the Spirit of God. And though it's not radical, it is absolutely awe-inspiring, which is a term that is actually used in our text that we're going to be looking at. So as we look, starting at verse 42 of Acts chapter 2, I want you to keep in mind that all of this growth that takes place took place right after the first exponential multiplication of the church. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. At the beginning of Acts, Jesus' disciples consisted of a handful at best. I mean, if you remember... They're still dealing with the pesky business of having to replace that Judas character, right? So it begins with them drawing lots, picking Matthias, so that they could even just get the 12 back to full strength. And then at Pentecost, we see this 12 begin to turn into 120. And then after Pentecost, Peter, full of the Holy Spirit, goes out and preaches the gospel, and that 120 turns into three Thousands. So back to the first message of the series, God multiplies his church. And here he used his servant Peter in the preaching of the gospel because the call that he made all the way back in Genesis, that we looked at our first message in this series to be fruitful and multiply and spread his dominion over all the earth was never something that he rescinded. That came before the fall, that came before sin ever entered into the world and then after sin, you never see him say, hey, okay, stop going out and being fruitful and multiplying. It's something that was still in order from the very beginnings of creation. 
And then the call that he made to the disciples in the Great Commission to go out and make disciples and teach his commandments, i.e. dominion, was never rescinded. And then the call to take that dominion of Jesus and bring it into our homes and make disciples in our very homes, that call was never rescinded. And there was a reason we taught this mini-series in the order that we did, because God continues to just take his work, spread out, and use knuckleheads like us to accomplish it. That's pretty awesome. It's pretty humbling. And it's still never been rescinded. So God has to do something with all of these people that he just converted. Let, let me point out, there is an order to how we see things here, and this is an order that we still see played out today. So first, we see the gospel being preached. You see this declaration of the pure and simple gospel by Peter in Acts chapter 2, verses 14 through 36. Then, in verse 37, the people are moved to respond. They hear this gospel preaching, they're cut to the heart, and they're moved to respond to what they had just heard. And then verse 38, they're given an answer to how they should respond. How should we respond? Well, each one of you repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And then the people believed as they begin to respond. Verse 40, it says, those who received his words. And then in verse 41, we see all of those who received his words were baptized, which... To me, I'm sorry for a couple of Presbyterian members here. Actually, I'm, I'm not sorry because you guys are whacked on this. Um, it says those who believed were then baptized. Pete, um, in case you didn't know I was talking to you, and Rich Cromwell, if you're listening on the recording. Um, those who believed were then baptized. I don't know how many of your babies believed before you um, sprinkled water on their heads, but just saying, those who believed... It says then in verse 41, were baptized, and then immediately after they were formed into Christian community in verses 42 through 47. So, you see the clear expectation was that if you belonged to Jesus Christ, you belonged to Christian community. If you want proof of that, who is the they that we're talking about in verse 42? And it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. So I don't see any narrowing or changing of the audience from verse 41. All of those who had just believed, who were baptized, who were added to the church. So it seems like the they are all of those who had just professed belief in Jesus and were baptized and brought into the body of Christ. Let me put this as bluntly to you guys as humanly possible to do. We see plenty of people who were not a part of Christ being invited to participate in Christian community. And I could give examples and I will, but you cannot find one example of someone who is a Christian not participating in Christian community. Let me repeat that. You see plenty of examples of people 
who did not know Christ being invited to walk with and participate along with Christian community, but you cannot find one example of somebody who is a Christian not participating in Christian community. And let me just address, because I'm sure you're out there, because anytime I use the words always and never, this person always comes up. So thief on the cross guy, if you're out there, they always like to come up, and whenever you make an always or never statement, they say, well, what about the thief on the cross? He wasn't involved in Christian community. The thief on the cross was never baptized. The thief on the cross never took communion. The thief on the cross didn't tithe. If that really is going to be the benchmark for where you want to set your Christian life, to pick the lowest common denominator in the whole Bible and say, what about that guy? I mean, he got a 70. He got in by grading on the curve. So can I? All right. If that's all you're looking for out of your Christian experience, I, this sermon's probably not for you. Uh, is that really the goal, to just come neck and neck with the lowest common denominator of what it means to be a believer in Jesus in the Bible? But I digress. Um, just to give a little proof of my statement that you saw people who didn't yet believe finding a home amongst those who did believe and living out that beginning of a kernel of a seed of belief amongst other Christians, you have Paul writing to the Corinthians, giving them instructions and saying, hey, you guys are being really confusing. You've got a bunch of non-Christians in your midst, and you guys are getting together and babbling like a bunch of monkeys, so how about you knock it off so you stop confusing all of the non-Christians that are with you? Or you have Jesus talking about the wheat and the tares growing up alongside of each other. And nowhere does he say, like, you know what? This is just supposed to be a wheat gathering. So you get them tares out of there. As a matter of fact, the disciples say, should we go and separate the wheat from the tares? And Jesus says, no. Spend the rest of your life just pleading with the wheat to show up to church each week. No, he didn't say that either. He said, don't bother. That's... That's not necessary. I'll take care of that. Jesus had no problem with the idea of tares coming and spending time amongst the wheat. Unbelievers come and spending time engaging Jesus with people who were believers. Jesus had no com problem with the concept that you did not have to believe in order to belong amongst the community of Christian believers. That, that seemed to be okay with him, but it would have been just completely foreign to anything we see in the Bible, this idea that you could belong to Christ, yet not be involved in meaningful Christian community. So it works one way, but not the other. Those who don't know Jesus, they're invited to come and experience and taste and see Jesus alongside of you. What a great apologetic for the power of the gospel, right? But if you do know Jesus, there is an expectation that you will be involved and engaged in regular, meaningful Christian community. And honestly, I could go about laying out proofs from almost every book of the Bible about this. I could give so many that it would be ridiculous. But if you're sitting here and listening and you don't believe that Christian community is fundamental for Christians to be engaged in gospel community, then you're not going to agree with anything else I'm going to say today either, and you probably aren't going to agree with anything else I say after today either. So I'm not going to give a million proofs for something that should be able to be taken for granted. So what does the community look like? Let's look again at verse 42. It says, And they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching 
to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. The apostles' teaching. What is the apostles' teaching? First and foremost, the apostles' teaching is about Christ. Paul told the Corinthians, look, I did not come to you with licks and tricks and gimmicks and smooth words and flattery. I came to know nothing amongst you but what? Christ and Christ crucified. Peter told the lame man, silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. And what was it that he had? Christ. Paul warns Timothy and Titus, don't be running around with people that want to get all stuck on secondary stuff like stupid things that Christians argue about, like how many angels can dance around on the pinhead. Keep the emphasis Christ. And if you don't, then that person, he says, they have a warped and debased mind, actually. So right at the center of Christian community has to be a Bible on the table. Amen? I mean, otherwise, we're just winging it here, folks. And Christian community consists of whatever Dr. Feelgoodery is around at that time. It has to have a Bible at the center. And I would go further to say that there has to be an unwavering commitment to teach Christ as the center of the Bible that's on the table. If we just moralize people with the Bible, thump people with the Bible, um, politicize people with the Bible, we haven't taught the Bible. We're there to use the Bible to present the person of Christ. Every single teaching that we give should be filtered through the person and the completed work of Christ. Otherwise, there's nothing uniquely Christian about the things that we're teaching. So that means that to develop community around the apostles' teaching, you are developing community around Christ. Next, it says that they gathered for fellowship. What is the difference between gathering for fellowship and hanging out? I'm sure the answer is going to surprise you. Anybody want to guess? Begins with a C-H, ends with a S-T. Christ! That's what turns your hanging out into fellowship is Christ being at the center of it. Fellowship is when we gather around our common shared interest in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ, with the focus being on Christ, in order to mutually experience Christ, and in some ways see Jesus manifested in our family gatherings in ways that we couldn't experience him alone because we are experiencing him now through the body of Christ. This is the reason why there's no such thing as a lone wolf Christian. You know, there are great sermons that you could download as soon as you leave here. You could go listen to Tim Keller and John Piper, and and I hope you do. But I hope that you don't use that as an excuse to not be participating and fellowshipping in Christian fellowship because real Christian fellowship shows you Christ in ways we're just downloading good teachings buffet style never will be able to be. Without fellowship, you're missing out on a key component of seeing and savoring and enjoying Christ. Third, it says the breaking of bread. 
And there's two ways that you can interpret the breaking of bread. This could either be talking about having a meal together, or others say this was an illustration of communion, the Lord's table, the Lord's supper. I take the view that it was talking about both, and they didn't have this weird dichotomized view that we have today, that they would gather together for a meal because most churches were small enough where they met in a house, and as they met for a meal, that they would partake of communion, and they would share Christ. As they met for the apostles' teaching of fellowship, there was a meal, and the meal would have communion as a part of it. So why did Jesus instruct the church to partake of this meal that we call communion? Because we're forgetful people and we're called to remember who? Christ. Thank you. That's going to be the answer to everything I ask. So if you guys want to be primed, um, I once heard a preacher I respect say you could, you could tell how good of a sermon it is that even if it's his clunker, he's aiming to just mention the name of Jesus so many times that you can't even keep count. So um, I'm going to go with that, man. I'm just going to keep saying Christ. If I throw it out to you, the answer is what? Amen. Thank you. Uh, So because we're called to remember Christ, when they gathered for uh, community, they would take this meal and come together and remember Christ. And since I already made my pitch about baptism earlier, I thought I might as well throw my presuppositions on the table with regards to the Lord's Supper. I have no idea how people can be involved in Christian community that takes the Lord's Supper once a month or once a quarter. That is one of the most unbiblical and lamest things I've ever heard. I mean, it, it just makes no sense to me. It's insane. I remember when I first planted the church and we started taking communion every single week, people came up to me and said, isn't it going to become old or ritualistic if you begin to take it every single week? No, that's nuts. That's a crazy question. Why would remembering the completed work of Jesus that took me from being a hellbound sinner who was a child of wrath, even as the rest, as Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, but God, being rich in his mercy, made me alive together with Christ Jesus. How could that ever get old? Why could you ever stop celebrating that? Man, I I celebrate that as a foretaste of when he says, I'm not going to be able to drink of this again until what? There's going to become a day where I get to drink it new with him in my father's kingdom. So why would I ever be sick of it now when I'm going to be spending eternity looking forward to having that meal with Jesus? Amen? It's insane. Uh, I could tell you, I've been doing the Lord's Supper weekly for about 10 years now. I came from a tradition where it was like once a quarter or once, once a month. It has never become a dead and lifeless ritual for me even once. If it was, I'd stay in my seat and I would abstain that week. But I don't struggle with that. I look forward to after the sermon when Pastor Tim or one of the pastors gets up and shares, hey, now's the time to take that truth and begin to apply it in ways where we get to remember what Jesus has done and we get to actually partake of this meal that gives you a sensory overload to be able to see and taste because we're forgetful people and we get to savor and remember Jesus together. And remembering Christ never gets old. As a matter of fact, the way that I read, the way that I read this, I don't even think that they just took communion on every Sunday. I think they took it every time they gathered. I mean, keep reading on in the text and tell me I'm different. Keep reading, go read 1 Corinthians 11 and tell me that I'm off on that. Why not? 
What argument could you ever give for not partaking of the Lord's Supper more often and to be able to partake of it less often? Because every single time we do this in remembrance of him, it's a time to sit and reflect on who Jesus is, what he's done, and how he's loved me. How could that ever get old? And then it says they devoted themselves to prayer. And prayer is simply just communing and conversing with Christ. The early church gathered to pray. And when they did, they saw Jesus move on behalf of his church. This is one of the the key arguments that I see for being a part of a community group that goes beyond your Sunday morning worship experience as being so critical. Do we pray on Sunday mornings? Yes. As a matter of fact, we have people up here to pray with you every single week. And one of the things that I just pray that our church will begin to transform into, those people should be taken up every single week. Because Jesus said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And there's people that would love to pray with you. And there are people that are showing up with burdens that need to be prayed for. So go and partake of Christ and pray with somebody. But community group is that place where we go beyond Sunday mornings and we get to pray for those things that are critical during the week. My wife has the flu this week, and nothing big. Everybody gets the flu once or twice throughout the year. But you know how much it meant to me to have my community group leader reach out and just say, hey, is she any better since yesterday? We've been praying for her. Something simple. Nobody's dying in my home, but I got that text, and I thought, wow, this really mattered. They met last night. It was significant to them that we weren't there. Today, as they pray, they're still praying because my family is significant to these people. That's just biblical Christianity, guys. One of my favorite things about being in a community group is being able to take the opportunity to pray for one another and support one another in prayer. And when we gather together and look at Christ through his word, we fellowship with Christ at the center, we take time to remember the sacrifice of Christ, and then we get to come before the throne of Christ, something powerful happens. You begin to give off a stench. You give off this odor. It's an odor that Paul in 2 Corinthians calls the very fragrance of Jesus. Because you're in relationship with Jesus. And then you begin to meet with other people who are in relationship with Jesus. And as you do, Jesus becomes bigger and bigger. And you get to experience the life of Jesus manifested in and through Christian community. Has anybody ever experienced that before? Yeah, let me hear you say amen if you've experienced that. Okay. Um, And when these elements come together, look at the result in verse 43. The result is awe. It says, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs are being done to the apostles. And this statement just blows my mind, and it challenges me, and it gives me hope all at the same time. I want this awe that they speak of. Do you live your Christianity just saying, man, I I hunger for awe? Like, I don't want the status quo. I've tasted the status quo. I know where that's going. I want an awe-filled Christianity. I want my Christianity to be as awful as possible in the true meaning of the word awful. Do you? Does the thought drive you? I want to live my life in awe of Jesus. Now, I'm not talking about a cheesy, hype-driven Go attack hell with a squirt gun. Get the emotions all riled up. Rah, rah, Jesus party, Jesus. This was true, undeniable, Christ-centered awe 
that they were experiencing here in verse 43. And of course there was awe because Jesus was right at the center of it. You ever hear when Jesus said in the Gospel of John that if the Son of Man is lifted up, he'll what? He'll draw everybody to himself. So why would we be surprised if we formed community with an unflinching desire and devotion to keep Jesus at the center and to lift up the Son of Man, that he would actually honor the promise that he said that he would honor and that he would draw all people to himself. And when that happens, what other than awe could possibly result? But I should point out that those four, even though they've become a template, I don't mean to burst any sacred cows here. Yeah, I do. Who am I kidding? I love doing that. Um, uh, they're not the only aspects that are put on display here. And that's critical to read. Look at verses 44 through 46. And it says, All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and their belongings and distributing proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received food with gladness and generous hearts. I'm, I'm not sure why, but it seems like sacrifice is put on display just as clearly as the four elements that are mentioned in verse 42 are. But for some reason, they are never mentioned as being as critical as the other four. I've, not, I've heard this passage taught on probably as much as any passage in the entire Bible, and it's been taught on even more recently in years. And you always hear the basics about how the early church kept the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. Have you ever heard, added to that list, put on the same shelf? How many of you have ever heard sacrifice being added to those four? Tell me you can read this passage and not see sacrifice as being as central, if not more central, as those four elements that were listed in verse 42. I'm in no way trying to diminish the importance of the apostles teaching fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer, but I'm trying to wrap my mind around why sacrificial living has not been given the same platitude that those other four were given. They're each mentioned in verse 42, so their mere mention makes them important, but sacrificial living towards one another in Christian community is the next three verses. So we'll have churches split over whether there's enough attention being given to the four different elements in verse 42, yet the next three whole verses are about Christian sacrifice, which sets the tone for the next three whole chapters, which are about early Christian sacrifice, but for same, some reason it's not mentioned on the same rung as the other four. So why does Christian community have to have sacrifice be a central part? Um, because... I've been making the point that Christian community is all about manifesting Jesus. How can you manifest the person or the heart of Jesus without sacrifice? Just a little disclaimer to anyone out there who's never gotten in a Christian community because it didn't check all of your boxes or all of your preferences. Why would you want that anyway? Because then at best, you would have a community that looks like you. And you would have a community that has been formed in thy image. And by thy, I mean you. Why would you want that? I don't want community that looks like me. I want community that looks like Jesus. So when we gather together in Christian community, we place before him the teaching, the fellowship, the remembrance in our prayers. But then we had the willingness to live sacrificially for the sake of one another. Something powerful happens. You begin to smell like Christ. 
How could we ever expect to experience the awe of Christ without experiencing the greatest demonstration of the love of Christ, which was shown for us in his sacrificial death for us at the cross? What happens when, when Jesus is at the center is you're willing to sacrifice because you realize it's not about you. It's about Jesus. And then something special begins to happen. And this is where I'll close. Turn to Titus 3 for a moment because there was a passage that just kind of rocked in my devotional time. And I think it brings what we're doing here to a pretty fair close. It's another passage about the heart of Christian community. And check out how this passage is laid out. It says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, ready for every good work, speaking evil of nobody, avoiding quarreling, being gentle and showing perfect courtesy to all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and lusts, um, passing our days in malice and envy and hatred, even hating one another. And then, but when the goodness and kind and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works we have done in righteousness, but according to our, his own mercy, by the washing and regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out for us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So, I don't know about you, but I was called to memorize this passage. When I don't know if you guys memorize scripture, but when I went to Bible school and we started to learn salvation scriptures, this was one of the very first passages that I was called to memorize. But I memorized it like this. When the goodness, starting in verse 4, when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, our Savior, appeared. He saved us, not on the basis of works done by us in righteousness. What's wrong with memorizing it like that? There's a word missing. The term but is missing. We would memorize it without perhaps the key word of what Paul is trying to drive home through this passage. So what does the but do? It grounds our understanding of Christian community in the grace and the love and the kindness of our Lord. Yes, verses 4 through 7 are all about, yes, we experienced him because he is loving, he's gracious, he justified us, he grabbed a hold of us. But it starts with a but. It's saying live this way. Live this way in community. Because Jesus came and demonstrated this. It's not just talking about your salvation. It's a springboard to talking about your sanctification. He's saying, because Jesus has done this for you, live this way in the way that you engage one another. So just like the passage took all of those experiential aspects of Christian community and grounded them in the sacrificial nature of Christ, this grounds our community in grace and mercy and the love of Christ. Look at this little diagram that'll show you just how that passage really ought to be read. Um, you got Titus 1 through 3 that talks about, hey, come together in this, in this sort of way. Verses 4 through 7, Jesus himself exemplified this certain way. And verses 3 through 8, since Jesus himself showed us how to live what a gospel-centered man ought to look like, you now take this and live it out amongst Christian community. That's the way that passage ought to be taught. And guess what? When that happens, awe results. And then it says in the remainder of Acts chapter 2 that when these things began to occur, that people observed them 
and it began to spread throughout the city, and awe began to manifest itself. So it's a portal through the rest of the book of Acts. When people saw what Christ-centered community looked like, they wanted it, and why wouldn't they? That what they really wanted was Christ. So let me allow that to take us into our application. God calls us to be fruitful and multiply. In doing so, we make disciples. As we make disciples, we spread his dominion into our churches, into our homes. As we do that, God places us into biblical community, and we gather into biblical community around him. He multiplies biblical community. That's where our belief in planting churches came from, folks. We don't plant churches because God's called us to plant churches. As a matter of fact, God doesn't call you to plant churches anywhere in the Bible. He calls you to go out and make disciples. As a matter of fact, he says, where is the house that you would build for me or the footstool that you would build for my name? Do I not own everything already? So we're not called to go and plant churches. We're called to make disciples. But as we multiply disciples, those disciples multiply into communities. As you multiply communities of disciples, it begins to spread out. More people get added to the community of Christ, multiplying churches and seeing people saved and calling upon the name of Jesus. And the result of, is awe. And that's what we do. What we do. So is that radical? No, it's simply church, which is the point of the series. So application, first, you don't have to believe to belong. That's not saying just come along and don't believe. If you're here, I'm going to be very clear. Our hope and our prayer and our preaching and our conversation is that you would put your faith in the saving work of Jesus. But if you're here and you haven't, Welcome. We're really happy that you're here with us, and there's no place that we would rather you be today. Two, God's design is that every one of his sons and daughters would be in a familial community relationship, something that matters, not just something to go to. Just like church is not something you go to, it's something you are. Community is not something you arrive at, it's something you're a part of. Number three, what makes Christian community distinctly Christian is the refusal to have anything other than Christ be the center of it. Number four, sacrifice, realizing that it's not about you is the glue that holds Christian community together. Number five, when Christian community comes together with Christ at the center, the result is awe because it smells like Jesus. Number six, Christian community is not about what we do, but the way we are and our hearts as we one another with one another. That's not a real sentence. <laughs> Don't know what to tell you. <laughs> Number seven, when Christian community has Jesus at the center, he adds to our number, and he's the one who does the work, not our licks, tricks, and gimmicks. Number eight, God has always multiplied Christ-centered community because it magnifies his son. And the Father stops at nothing to magnify the Son, just as the Son stopped at nothing to magnify the Father. And number nine, being a Christian means being a part of a family, and a healthy family is a community. And we celebrate that as we partake of this communal meal that we call communion, the Lord's Supper, which we commune with Christ and we commune with one another. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you for the opportunity to commune with you right now. And we ask that as we do that, um, Lord, we would realize just the awesome aspect that we are communing 
with the fellowship of believers worldwide right now as we commune with our Heavenly Father through the shed blood of our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.